don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast. This is your host, Hansa Bergwall. And today we have Sharon Salzberg. And Sharon is really a, a legend in the circles of people who practice meditation. She was one of the founders of the Insight Meditation Society uh, way back when, I think in the 70s. And today we're going to be talking about Sharon Salberg's uh, new title, Real Love, what it has to do with meditation, thinking about your own mortality and death. And it's fascinating stuff. It's, it's all connected. And to be totally honest, if you are someone who's ever practiced meditation as you know an American Westerner, She's at least indirectly probably one of the reasons why, because she was part of that first guard of people who uh, brought some of these practices to America and figured out what it would be and why it was special here in this context. And besides one of the people that uh, made meditation a thing here in America, and it's a big thing today, she's also the author of nine books and has dedicated the last several decades of her life to teaching meditation, teaching mindfulness. And she's one of my heroes, so I am so um, happy to have this conversation here and share it with you. I think uh, we talked about some things that are really worth hearing. If you've been listening to the We Croak podcast for a while, uh, thank you so much. And also thank you if you contributed on Patreon. Uh, We're about to do some things to make our audio quality so much better. So keep listening and bear with us. It'll take effect in just a couple episodes from now. Thank you. And without further ado, here is Sharon Salzberg. Sharon Salzberg, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great pleasure to be here. So Real Love is your 11th book, I believe. It's my 10th book. Your 10th book. Oh, wow. But I'm working on number 11 now. All right. Well, it'll be true soon. (laughs) When we get to these high numbers, you can forgive me for uh, getting it one off. And you've been a meditation teacher for a very long time now. Why don't we start by just like, how did you get into meditation and how long have you been doing it? I have been doing it for so long. Um, That's what happens when you get older, you know, and you've only done one thing really. I went to India in 1970 as a college student. It was sort of part of this university program. And I began meditating in January of 1971. So I spent the months before, kind of looking around. Well, first of all, getting there, because we all went overland in those days. So that was, you know, flying to Europe and then train and bus and truck and who knows what through the Mideast to get to India. And then I wanted something very direct and practical. I really wanted like a how-to. And it took a while to find just that kind of thing. So it was January of 1971 that I started and I ended up staying a little longer than my year um, that I was allotted, but I did come back and finish school, and then I went back to India. So I came back in 1974, and that was when one of my teachers told me to teach, and so it was like kind of the old-fashioned way of becoming a teacher in that my own teacher told me to teach. So I've been teaching since 1974. Oh, wow. That's, That's really an amazing time to get started. So when I first picked up your book, Real Love, there was a part of me in the back of my hand that, you know, I groaned because I'm like, oh, what a sappy title, Real Love and all this stuff. <laughs> but 
by the time I'd read the introduction, I'm like, actually, no, this is a pretty badass title because basically what you're saying is this word, love, that we throw around all the time and we think we know what it means, but you've got 24 chapters here to say, like, maybe you don't <laughs> or not nearly as well as you could. Uh-huh. So... <laughs> Well, probably the first thing I should say is that I don't get to choose my own book titles. (laughs) I mean, I have very nice publishers, and they always want me to be happy, but I don't have that kind of power, you know, contractually, so. But it does feel like the the argument in your book, at least from what I read in the intro, is very much like, you need to think more deeply about love. You're probably missing a lot of it. Well, almost the whole book, in a way, came out of this one line in a movie. The movie is... Uh, Dan in real life. It was now it's maybe eleven years old, something like that. And this character in the movie says, "Love is not a feeling; it's an ability." And I was I just love that line because it resembled not my earliest earliest meditation experiences, but you know I kept going back to Asia and India and Burma. And I went to Burma in nineteen eighty five and did a three month period of intensive loving kindness meditation. And during the course of that, I had some experience that could be expressed in just that way. I realized, you know, that in general, I and we are conditioned to think of love as outside of ourselves. It's like something someone else can give us, but then it's also something someone else can take away from us. And so I realized in that retreat that, no, it's inside me. It's mine as a capacity, as an ability, and that other people may help awaken it or threaten it, but it's mine. And ultimately, it's also my responsibility um, if it's a capacity inside myself. And so I just love that line. And then the whole kind of examination of a word that drives us crazy, basically, you know, and we want love, whatever that means, so badly, and uh, we don't trust it, and we hold on, and we push it. I mean, it's just like uh, a lot, a lot of conditioning around it. Yeah, I really like that word responsibility because to me it feels like what this book is about, really. That, you know, you have a responsibility to yourself mm-hmm. for real love in your life and then also the people around you just because, you know, it makes it so much, much better when we, you know, give that to each other mm-hmm. and to ourselves. And your book is full of every chapter, I think, has ways to practice <laughs> on those points to, to get better at your responsibility. And uh, so that, that idea feels like it's really central. And it's a different way of looking at love. Is it really possible to have real love every day? Oh, I think it's possible for sure. If you rather drink ask every moment, <laughs> that was like, that's tougher, you know, like, I mean, of course we blow it and we lose it and we get frightened and we get angry, whatever but we can return, and I think that's, I mean, obviously you don't need to be a meditator to be deepening qualities like love, but for me, some of the real skill of meditation practice has been around things like starting over and beginning again, like you're sitting down, maybe focusing on your object of meditation, and then you go off, you know, like to some other place in your mind, and then it comes a moment when you realize that and you think, oh, I, I need to let go and just start over and not berate myself for a year and a half or, you know, put myself down or declare myself a failure. And that's one of the greatest life skills I think I've ever learned is that nothing is actually helped by that tirade against ourselves or uh, we can learn so much more and make so much more progress and 
get more effective and more efficient when we learn how to let go and start over. And that's really like a resilience training. So I, I took that right from my meditation training. Yeah. And it seems like the, the book is ordered in a way where a lot of chapters are about just common pitfalls of how we fall out of love and into bickering, stress, envy, uh, comparison mind, you name it. And a lot of the practices that you recommend are about, you know, how to start over, <laughs> how to pick yourself back up and try mm -hmm. in a new way. I was actually going to ask you if you need to meditate to have a lot of real love because so many of the practices were sort of meditation-based. Yeah. Sure. Well, that's me. You know, that, that's my That's like my terrain, you know. And uh, no, I don't, I don't imagine at all that you need to meditate. I just happen to feel... I was lucky in a way because it's like kind of direct training with your mind and paying attention differently because uh, we have so many habits and we have so much conditioning and most of us tend to be kind of scattered or distracted or fragmented and maybe not in every arena of life but at least in some places and so if you're you know you're at a party and you're having a conversation with a stranger and you're not really listening and you're not really taking them in and you're thinking about the email you need to write or something like that, you're not really going to have the foundation for any kind of genuine sense of connection. You know, so the the whole premise is that we can train our attention differently and a lot of the things we want just come from that difference, like a sense of connection or listening more deeply and, you know, feeling like we belong more, things like that. Yeah. So you don't have to meditate but it sounds like you do have to be willing to work with and retrain your mind. Yeah, I think so. A little. I think that's... I think so. Yeah. And, and that begins with, in a way, you, you kind of said it, like, it begins with seeing the conditioning as it is. You know, um, so, you know, it's not like overly idealistic or, or something uh, kind of airy-fairy, but you see, wow, you know... Um, I stop listening to people when I meet them at a party because all I'm thinking about is myself. You know, like, what do they think about me? Do they like me? You know, or I have, like, this terrible, terrible burden of perfectionism and I, I feel like I can't talk because it won't be perfect or whatever it is, you know, and that's kind of where we start. So we need, we need to be able to see all that stuff and not take it so to heart that we identify with it, like, I'm the worst person that ever lived, you know? But just see it as a habit, see it as a pattern, and yeah. be willing to change it. And I'm sure some people listening, you know, they know, like, yeah, I should meditate, or I should retrain my mind, but maybe next year, maybe yeah, sure. some other time, or I don't really need to do that. And I'm just wondering, our, our actions, what we do and we don't do, I believe they have consequences. And because you've been a meditation teacher since 1974, you've probably heard the stories and I'm just wondering, like, what happens to people if they, if they don't, if they're unwilling? Like, what have you heard about people who just, at least up to the point where they talk to you, have been completely unwilling to retrain their minds? Well, it's all different, you know, because um, people have very different kinds of life circumstances. But nothing good lasts forever. And in the end, we all do die, you know. And before then... There is, uh, I mean, I, I just look, you know, it's interesting to me, like, thus far, it's been the United States, England, and Japan that are starting to report epidemics of loneliness 
And you think, where's that coming from? You know, why do we feel so cut off from one another? And what's going on? And then, you know, we get sick, we die, loved ones die. I mean, it's like there are moments of huge letting go in life. And I was once interviewed for this magazine, and um, what I had to say was never got into the article, but the interviewer said something to me like, how can mindfulness work? Or, you know, what would be the role of mindfulness when you're in a complete crisis? And my response to him was, I wouldn't wait. You know, sometimes people do wait. They wait for that diagnosis or for, you know, the mortgage to blow up or whatever it is, you know. And even then, the tools might be of some support and and help. But I don't think we need to wait. It's like that ordinary day, you know, nothing much is bad or even great, you know. And we're just practicing. It's like strength training or something. Yeah. I mean, you said it very gently, but I think... When you think about it, it's actually a very big consequence. I mean, you get could get caught up in an epidemic of loneliness that is seen in the data and die before you get out of it. Mm-hmm. That's not how I want my life to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, now that I'm older, <laughs> considerably older, you know, it's like a dream. You know, because I met so many of the people, for example, I'm still very close to when I was in India, when I was 18, and I'm a long ways from 18 now, but I look around and I think, wow, how did that happen? That's so startling. Or, you know, I went uh, with a friend in England to some park or garden or something like that where you, you had to buy a ticket and they had special discounted senior rates. So she asked the guy behind the desk for two senior tickets, which we were qualified for. And uh, he just handed them over, and she got very insulted and, and affronted. And she said, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to say, no, 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 no. You can't possibly be qualified for a senior rate. You don't look nearly. You know, and he, I mean, he, she was funny, and he was funny. And so he, he played his part, you know, and he insisted on seeing, like he carded us, you know. He had to see our driver's license or something so that uh, he could cheer her up. And say, no, 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 you look like you're 18 still, you know. Like, But it goes by like a flash, and uh, you don't want to come to the end of your life and think, where'd it go, totally, you know, and, and not have these the sense of having connected. Yeah. So how do the, you know, walking the walk, these principles that you share in this book, how have they made your life different? In a way, that's a hard question for me to answer because it's the life I've had since I was 18. You know, like, I don't know. But clearly, I'm a lot happier you know, than I was. And I feel like, well, that, that sense of resilience, being able to begin again or having a, a willingness to try things. I mean, everything you know, has changed. Like, a story I sometimes tell is how when I first started teaching, the format of intensive retreats we kind of inherited from... Our own teachers in India was that there's maybe instructions and questions and answers in the morning after breakfast. These are like intensive silent retreats. And then people just practice all day long and, and they meet with teachers either individually or in groups. And then there's one formal lecture, which is at night for like 45 minutes or an hour. And I was completely terrified of public speaking. So I, I could not give any of those talks. And because we do a lot of team teaching, 
and always have, people used to go up, say to Joseph Goldstein or whoever I was teaching with and yell at him and say, you know, why won't you let her speak? Why won't you give her a voice, let her have a voice? And he'd say, I'd love for her to give a talk. Talk to her, you know. I'm not holding her back. Talk to her. And I was just terrified. And it was through a whole process, especially around loving kindness, you know, and realizing, oh, you know, People just want a sense of connection. They don't, they're not sitting there hoping I will display my dazzling expertise, you know, that they could never hope to attain anyway. <laughs> you know, they, they want a sense of connection. And I've had many uh, students, for example, now who are performers or artists who have to do kind of a public thing and, and they have big stage fright and they say they stand there on the stage and they do loving kindness meditation for the audience thinking you know, silently, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. And that sense of, you know, there's the others out there waiting to judge me, it kind of dissolves. And it's like, okay, we're all here together. This is what's happening. And you're not so petrified of making a mistake or, you know, you can laugh at that together. Or, you know, it's a very different feeling. So I have like a million examples like that because it's been my whole life. Yeah, can you, can you just share with us what loving kindness is? Because I know it's a meditation or maybe even a habit of thought. Mm -hmm. In the kind of annals of meditation, mindfulness has, you know, gotten to be very, very popular. And it's kind of a foundational quality and also a whole kind of category of approaches to meditation practice. And another category, another way of practicing is the dedicated development of qualities like loving kindness or love or compassion is another way of saying it. And so um, they're very supportive of one another, and most people I know will do some of each, but they're actually different methodologies. And so I tend to teach a lot of loving kindness because I spend a lot of time practicing it because it's a lot, mostly what I've written about. So we can practice it sitting on a meditation cushion or even you know, before we get up on a public stage or mm -hmm. have a difficult conversation with a family member or friend or enemy or what have you. Just do it, and yeah. it tends to make the approach more relationship-based yeah. Yeah. as opposed to fear, paranoia, whatever, like comparison, judgment, envy, whatever else could be mm -hmm. taking center stage. Well, it has, again, you know, to do with attention, so... The first question would be, how are we paying attention? Are we actually paying attention? Or are we just so distracted we're not even there? And then the question is, what are we paying attention to? So, I mean, evolutionary biologists say, not every one of them agrees, but it's a trend, uh, say we basically have a negativity bias. You know, we live as though we're still in the jungle, sussing out threats and, and danger. We don't tend to notice the beauty, the joy, the you know, the delight, unless we consciously take it in. If you think about, you know, if you have the habit of evaluating yourself, say, at the end of the day, looking back almost as though to say, how did I do today? And if you are the kind of person who pretty well only remembers the mistakes you made and what you could have said better and what didn't go right, let's just say, it takes a kind of intentionality, not force and not coercion, but an actual intentionality to include, well, what's right, you know? What's the good within me? What was the blessing of today? You know, something like that. And so it's not moving to a place that's phony or hypocritical or denying the, some of these very real problems, but 
It's just filling out the picture, so it's actually more true. It's where our mind doesn't tend to go. And then there's a huge, huge question in terms of attention, which is who do we pay attention to? And who do we objectify? Who do we ignore? Who becomes the other for us? Not even so much by virtue of, um, you know, bias or prejudice, but just indifference. Like if you think about the many people we encounter regularly who serve some function in our lives that we look right through, you know, check out person in the supermarket or dry cleaner or somebody like that. And, and the question becomes, what happens when we look at them and actually consciously wish them well? So one of the categories in formal loving kindness practice, which I actually like a lot, is choosing a neutral person. It's someone you don't strongly like or dislike. And usually it is just that kind of person, someone who plays some role in your life. And, and see what happens. You may not know their name. You don't know anything about them. But you can just get a sense of them. And as we do that meditation, we're, um, it's like a, a generosity meditation we're offering. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. And you just see what happens. And one of the reasons they suggest that you choose somebody you're likely to see now and then is because it's very interesting to see what happens over time. You know, not that you feel a wash and, you know, the rapturous bliss of incredible love for them as you're meditating, but things shift. They really do. And there is some sense of connection and wishing them well and hoping things work out for them and things like that, even knowing nothing about them. Yeah. I think the the problem of indifference seems like such a huge one of our age. One, because of the loneliness epidemic you talked about. And I mean, in New York, you're always surrounded by people. But most of them, I'll, I'll just cop to it. I feel rather indifferent about. You know, like, I don't know them. And also, you know, when you read the newspaper and you hear about things like children being detained at the border, maybe you feel angry for a little while, but then a minute later you... You turn the page and maybe don't do anything until the next election or this or that. Or Is it even possible to always care? And wouldn't that be exhausting? Or mm. how, how do we live with less indifference considering there's billions of people on this planet? Well, I think we care with balance. You know, it's like we don't want to take over someone's life necessarily. And you don't want to fall into the idea that it's all your under your control. You've got to make people happy. But I would be very happy in terms of the kids at the border if people did vote, you know, like, and they voted because of that. And that we all felt responsible for what was being done in our name. And, and so, I mean, it's, it's incredible to look at some of the videos of the kids being reunited with their parents and their, their you know, the kids are clearly in some trauma-induced fugue, you know, they're numb. And, and it's heartbreaking. And, you know, you don't want to think about that and that image like every single moment of your life because you will get exhausted. And, and uh, there's a kind of balance that's necessary, I think, in caring about ourselves as well. And also having some joy and, and delight, you know, and not only, you know, thinking about the suffering, which is very real. But if we can do that in a more balanced way, then how enriching is that to realize that if you refuse to look at painful things like that that are, to some extent, for some people, a result of their own inaction, you know, 
then what does that mean? I mean, you hit upon voting, and I happen to have a big passion about voting. So, uh, you know, like I have friends, for example, I was in conversation with who um, told me they didn't vote, which telling me is that, like, waving a red cloth in front of a pause. <laughs> and a lot of times people will say they don't vote because the difference between the candidates is just on the margins, you know, and... My response to these friends was a lot of people live on those margins. You know, if you feel like a slight change in immigration policy or a big change in immigration policy or a slight change in minimum wage has nothing to do with you, that doesn't mean it's not of earth-shattering importance to other people. You know, and so it's one way of breaking out of our isolation and our silos is actually to care. Yeah. And to do what we can, you know, to... Uh, try to make a difference for more people. Everyone start practicing loving kindness right now. <laughs> vote, 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 vote. <laughs> no, it's true, because sometimes when you're looking at these things, you're thinking, what what will these you know politicians do for me? You know, And sometimes there isn't a big difference That's if true. you're That's true. upper or middle class That's and having right. a job, and That's right. you know, your life will continue more or less the same. But that's not true for many, yeah. many people. Yeah, no, that's very, that's, you're absolutely right. And you know, I never suggest who people should vote for, but I think that participation is just essential. Hey everyone, it's Ian Thomas, one of the co-creators of We Croak, alongside, as always, our amazing podcast host, Hansa Bergwall. Hey everybody. And uh, we're taking a little break to encourage you to head over to wecroak.com, head over to a Patreon, and support us to make more of these podcasts, as well as to reach out. You know, tell us who else you'd like to hear us talk to, uh, what authors, musicians, or personalities you would like to hear ask about, you know, life and death. We want to hear from you. Right now we're doing this out of just the passion in our hearts, so... In order to make this into something that keeps happening, uh, we need you to care and, uh, and want it to keep happening. The whole reason this project happened was because of the passion that Hans and I felt for this amazing idea. And we could not have been more surprised and delighted by how you all have taken up the mantle of We Croak and pushed it into whole new territories with your user-submitted quotes, your suggestions about the tone of new quotes, ideas for changing the app. And we want to keep doing this for as long as you'll basically put up with us. So if you think this might be a good idea, something you want to continue supporting, we now have a brand new and super easy way through our Patreon page for you to keep doing that. And there are prizes, perks. So go see them. The Live Immediately mug. You, you want a Live Immediately mug, don't you? It's even better than the app because it sits on your desk and reminds you 50 times a day. Don't forget, you're going to die. Okay, uh, we need to get back to the conversation again, but this was fun. And you, you, one of the, you have a lot of great quotes in this book, and you have one, you know, you are a Buddhist meditation teacher, that's correct, but from the Buddha, and I think it, and correct me if I'm getting this paraphrase wrong, I don't have the page open, but it was basically, if you knew the truth, you would never harm another being. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you truly loved yourself, you'd you never harm another. Yourself, you would never yeah. harm another being. Yeah. Can you tell, tell me what that means to you? Yeah, I mean, first I should say, the first night of my first retreat as a student, 
uh, the teacher was S.N. Goenka, and he said, uh, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. And this is in no way about becoming a Buddhist or rejecting anything else or trying to just adopt a dogma or a belief system. And so that, I mean, that was the first night, you know, so that was really my foundational introduction, and it means a lot to me, you know, it's, it's how I've always taught. So sometimes people ask me if I'm a Buddhist, and I say yes, and sometimes I say, I don't think like that. Um, it just doesn't come up in my mind that much. I mean, years and years ago during the first Gulf War, um, a bunch of us were in, uh, we went to Nepal to study with this Tibetan teacher, and uh, well, there we bought a whole bunch of Buddhist statues, and then we were coming back through Thailand, and we were in the airport in Bangkok, and we got pulled aside for special security, and this guy was asking us this barrage of questions, and like, what'd you do last night, and all this stuff, and finally he just looked at me, and he said, are you Jewish? And I said, yes. And we walked on through, and then we were getting our, you know, our uh, handbags checked, and we had all the Buddha images in there, so they went up on the um, thing, and the, the screen showed all these silhouettes of Buddhas. So this woman said to me, are you a Buddhist? And I said, yes. And we walked on through, and I thought, that was so weird. That was like a, two minutes, you know, within which I answered yes to two very different questions. And I just don't think like that ordinarily. But, you know, I've always had teachers who were Buddhists and who were approaching meditation sort of cradled within that conceptual framework. And while they would say, as is very Buddhist, you don't have to believe anything, that's the languaging and the illustrations and the quotes and the examples and all of that. So that's how I'm used to describing this stuff. And I usually say that in the beginning because there are a lot of people there who maybe feel rooted in a different faith tradition or no faith tradition. And, and that's important, you know, that that happened. But I do quote the Buddha a lot, or Buddhist psychology. And uh, one quotation is, um, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. And I think it, it means to me two different things. One is that when we harm someone else, we actually do harm ourselves, even if we don't realize it at the time. And I think through whatever process, you end up looking at your life as a kind of moral inventory, you know, whether you're uh, meditating or you're doing 12 steps or you're, you're just paying a different kind of attention. You see, oh, there's a residue. You know, I thought that was... No big deal. Look at that. All these years later, it's still on me that it's still, you know, troublesome to me that I lied to that person. And every time I see them, I feel kind of, I'm recoiling. Or um, you realize, oh, I can't do that. It, it looks like a victimless crime, but it's going to detract from my well-being, from my, my actual peace of mind. And that's not easy to see with a superficial glance. So that's why we need the deeper journey of some kind or another. And we do see that. I have a friend, um, this story's in the book somewhere, who said, I, I often, on the request of the person, would change genders or something, so I'm not sure actually how I <laughs> told the story, but I have a friend who told me, well, you know what New York City real estate is like, and it's very difficult, and he got offered an apartment lease uh, that was like his ideal location, uh, reasonable rent, it was like perfect, perfect, perfect. And then through some questioning of the owner, he realized it was basically an illegal sublet and that he was going to have to say he was her cousin or he was only there temporarily, something like that. And 
He realized he actually couldn't do it because every single day when he walked into that lobby, he'd think, I have a secret. And, you know, what if I get found out? And it's like, it'd be so weird. And, and I, you know, I was writing that story, and so I told these friends and these other friends, and they said, everybody in New York lives that way, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but you, you get sensitive enough to realize it's, it, it's not inconsequential. All these things have consequences. And we feel, you know, we recoil and we're stressed and we're paranoid and we're, you know, and it's not worth it. So the other thing that quotation means to me is that we are capable of so much more than mediocrity or just getting by. You know, we're capable of true connection and, and happiness and uh, a sense of presence and wholeness. So why not go for that? You know, we're so diminishing of ourselves when we think, you know, yeah, I'm like completely screwed up, but I have a nice apartment. <laughs> you know, we could be so much happier than that. Yeah. I remember actually that, that story you told in the book uh, on secrets. It's, you know, one of the things that can take us away from real love. And, you know, it's just, it's so funny because, yes, there is so much competition for space in New York. And I think it's one thing that, you know, people uh, get pushed off of the real perspective by competition and um, trying to get, you know, more or just the right thing. And, you know, you, you shared the mindfulness and the meditation practice perspective, but then you also shared some recent studies that had come out on secret keeping and, you know, basically, like, how, much pe- how many boxes people could carry in an hour. Um, and they compared gay men who were out of the closet and gay men who were in the closet and the ones who were out of the closet could carry more boxes in an hour. And another study where, you know, people who were, had affairs were exhausted more even by carrying groceries up the stairs. So we think these things that we're doing don't have consequences. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, we might be kept away from real love. We might not be able to carry as many groceries. Right, I mean, right. it just goes on and on, it seems, yeah, when you yeah. really start to dig. Yeah. And I think it makes sense, you know, if we just look at our own experience, because from the meditative point of view, we're always our own laboratory, you know. And we just look and we say, wow, you know, like, who could have guessed, you know, like 20 years later, minding my own business, sitting in the jungles of Burma, you know, that memory would come back of like that time I did this or I said that and it feels so crummy and uh, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, yeah. There's another one um, that caught my eye about the inner critic, yeah. which is just, you know, constantly judging yourself, looking in the mirror. And, you know, you mentioned in it that, you know, a lot of people are just trying to silence their inner critic. Um, and it's so problematic. And yet, you know, mindfulness says we have to uh, love all of ourselves. Uh, so, I don't know, I thought maybe you might have a a story mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. that and maybe how do you how do you balance that of like mm-hmm. giving it its space accepting yeah. it but not letting it run mm-hmm. your life yeah i mean it's a really good question because the word mindfulness has gotten so popular and mindfulness can mean a lot of different things and they're very accurate but often misleading translations of the word they're accurate in the sense that they're truthful but for us, given our conditioning around language, like you just said, the word acceptance, you know, that's one of the one of the trigger words because 
For some people, acceptance just means giving in and succumbing, like, I'm going to accept that, you know. I once uh, was guiding a meditation uh, somewhere, and often, even if we're doing a breath meditation, we start by listening to sound. It kind of sets the stage. Uh, so I'd gotten only as far as the instruction, let's sit and listen to sound, and someone raised their hand and said, well, what if it's the sound of the smoke alarm I hear going off? Should I sit here mindfully, knowing the smoke alarm is going off, or should I get up? And I said, I'd get up, you know, but <laughs> it sounds that way. We're going to accept things the way that they are. We're going to be with our experience without judgment. So none of that means without intelligence, you know, without discernment. But we talk about mindfulness as a quality that slices down the middle of common, more extreme reactions. So one reaction is to let some emotional state or thought pattern take over completely. So we have no perspective, we have no sense of being centered, we're actually defined by whatever that emotion is. The other extreme is really disliking what we're feeling and pushing it away and hating it or fearing it or being ashamed, and neither of them are very healthy or helpful. And so we say mindfulness is a place in the middle where we're completely aware of what's happening. There's a balance there, which doesn't mean indifference, but it's an ability to explore or take an interest in the experience in a different way, and different resources come up. So I used to say my favorite definition of mindfulness came from this New York Times article a long time ago about one of the early pilot programs of mindfulness in schools. So this was a fourth-grade classroom in Oakland, and they asked this kid, who I assume is like 9 or 10 years old, what is mindfulness? And he says, mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth. That's what mindfulness means. And I thought, that is a great definition <laughs> of mindfulness because what does it imply? It implies, first of all, you realize you're angry when you're starting to feel angry, not after you've hit someone in the mouth or sent that email or done whatever, but just as it's beginning to build. It also implies a certain balanced relationship to the emotion because if you hate it and you fear it and you can't stand it and you want to repress it, you're just going to get tighter and tighter and tighter until you explode. Or if you just fall totally under its sway, probably end up hitting a lot of people in the mouth because life can be very annoying. So right down the middle, oh, this is what's happening right now. Let me stay aware of it. Um, space opens up. And in that space, there's creativity. There are options. Maybe you remember, you know what? I hit someone in the mouth last week. Didn't work out that well. Maybe let me try this. So it's not like you never do anything or say anything but it doesn't have to be driven from those old habits. So what we say in terms of the inner critic is we're trying to develop a different kind of relationship with it. And mindfulness is all about relationship. It's not about what's happening, but how am I with what's happening? So one of the tools you share a few times in this book for, I guess, deepening the relationship with what's happening is called RAIN. Yeah. It's an acronym. Yeah. For, help me here. Yeah, uh, recognize. The A can be accept or acknowledge, if accept is a difficult word for you. I is take an interest in it or investigate it. That doesn't mean, like, why is this here and what am I going to do about it? But what is this? You know, if we look deeply at anger, maybe we see a lot of sadness. Maybe we see a lot of fear. We look deeply at desire. Maybe we see a lot of loneliness, something like that. And 
So we want to really pay attention to what's happening in our bodies, what's happening in our emotional landscape. And then the N is, there are many variations of rain, but I would say non-identifying. You know, it's not like I'm such an angry person and I always will be. You know, it's recognizing this is like a passing state. Yeah, and it's it's just a helpful way of breaking down how yeah, to... Yeah, yeah. And so, like something like the inner critic, you know, you can also have fun with rain, you know, like... One of the suggestions I make is that if you have a persistent kind of nagging negative voice within, not a useful one, but a real nag, you know, give it a name, maybe give it a persona, give it a wardrobe, uh, and then just see how you're relating because it helps you see what is that relationship. So I, always with apologies to all the Lucys in the world, I named my inner critic Lucy after the character in the Peanuts comic strip because... I moved into this um, house once a friend had rented for several of us to do a retreat in. And when I went into the bedroom that was going to be mine, I saw a cartoon had been left on the desk from the Peanuts comic strip. And in the first frame of the cartoon, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown, and she says, you know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is, the problem with you is that you're you. And then poor Charlie Brown says, well, what in the world can I do about that? And then Lucy says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. <laughs> and somehow, whenever I would walk by that desk, my eye would fall right on that line. The problem with you is that you're you. Because that Lucy voice had been so dominant in my earlier life. And here's where I saw the tools of mindfulness and the, the things I cultivated, the strength I cultivated. Because something happened very soon after seeing the cartoon. Like something great happened for me. And my very next thought was, it's never going to happen again. And I greeted that thought with, hi, Lucy. <laughs> or my favorite form of that was, chill out, Lucy. Just chill. That's in contrast to, you're right, Lucy. You're always right, which is one extreme. And it's also in contrast to, I cannot believe Lucy is still here. I've been meditating all these years. I spent so much money in psychotherapy just last year. You know, why is Lucy still here? It's like, oh, hi, Lucy. It's almost a recognition that your awareness is stronger than that Lucy voice, which is actually transitory. And you can be kinder. You can have a little tenderness. And it's like, okay, Lucy, have a seat. You know, like, I'm busy. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here watching you kind of smile, almost as if you're looking at a, a Peanuts comic right. as you right. talk about her. Because <laughs> yeah. it's clear that she's just as negative as she always was. That's true. That's true. And yet when she pops up, she makes you smile now. Oh, Lucy. <laughs> That's great. Oh, yeah. That's 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 a Jedi trick for you. You, you heard it here first. <laughs> wow. All right. So, twenty-four chapters in here of things that can knock you off from real love and ways to practice starting over. What would you say is your number one sort of pitfall to having real love in your life? I would probably say fear. You know. That if you look at, I mean, first of all, I should say the pitfalls and the um, obstacles and the challenges are, that's part of my Buddhist training. Like one of the things you see, especially in that school, like Burmese Buddhism, you see very often is look at the problem. That's what's real. You don't have to think about how glorious it's going to be, you know, when it's all solved right now. I mean, you can think about it a little bit if that's inspiring, but mostly let's look at the problem. Let's look at where the source of the pain is. Let's look directly at it. And 
work our way out, you know, to different alternatives. So uh, I wrote one book called Real Happiness at Work. And I remember when I first met, I met uh, the editor of that book in a like, cafe or somewhere. And she said to me, what do you want the table of contents to read? Like, you know, what do you want the chapter headings to be? So I said, oh, like burnout, you know, um, exhaustion, stress, uh, moral woundedness. And she looked totally aghast. And she said, how about, like, integrity and balance? And I was like, yeah, that's the same thing, you know, because that's just my training. Like, let's look at the problem and work out of it. So uh, even in the classical lists, you know, people who have a lot of hostility, people who have a lot of greed or whatever, I'd say probably the biggest thread throughout my life has been fear. So why do you think we fear real love? There's also a line in the book where I talk, I talk about a dream I had when I was teaching at the center I co-founded, the Insight Meditation Society. And in the dream, I was dreaming that I was teaching at the Insight Meditation Society, and somebody came in to see me, and they said, uh, why do we love people? And I responded in the dream by saying, because they see us. And then I woke up and I thought, oh, that's pretty good. But it's also pretty terrifying. You know, there's a part of us, I think, that very much wants to be seen and therefore accepted in truth for who we are. And then there's part of us that would rather not be seen. And I think the conflict between those two really keeps us going, you know. And then yeah. there's, just, there's just a wealth of, it's not even personal conditioning, it's just cultural conditioning. What's love supposed to look like? And when a word, especially the word, is used for everything from, like, vanilla yogurt to uh, the love of your life, you know. Uh, it's so confusing. You know, I, I went through that so many times in working on the book. Like, it's not the same as liking somebody. It's not the same as even wanting to spend time with somebody. There are all kinds of considerations that come into play with how, you know, what boundaries we have. And, you know, maybe you love somebody and it's just not safe to spend time with them because you're also loving yourself. You know, there's so many considerations. The, uh, that's where I really started using the word connection because we get so confused and we might think it's the same, well, we very well might think it's the same as liking somebody and approving of them and thinking, well, then I can only say yes and I can only be sweet and I can only give them money and I can only let them keep behaving the way they are, but it doesn't imply any of that, really. It's an inner state, I think, of, of connection. We realize that our lives have something to do with one another, and how we act or what we say is, is another whole thing. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, at least for me, that that thing that's hidden from us, that our lives have a lot to do with one another, that if you truly love yourself, you'd never harm another living being. It's a little scary how big it is, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. it goes all the way to, you know, the little ant and the bee and the yeah. grasshopper to yeah. the big tree to yeah. your neighbor to the people you don't like, your political enemies, your mm -hmm. this, your that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and if that's real, it's a little scary. It's a little scary, but what's more scary is what's not real, I think. And I'm kind of reassured by what's real because it's the way things are. Mm -hmm. And when I get lost in 
the realms of what's not real, then there's no grounding, you know, because it's just whatever my mind makes up. So one of the things I've said from my mindfulness practice is that, you know, if I sit and look at fear, for example, because that's sort of how mindfulness expands, we might start with something like the feeling of the breath or different sensations in the body, but as time goes on, we become aware of whatever's predominant and we try to be with it in that same kind of balanced way so that that's where the learning happens. And so you can't be adding, you know, all that judgment, I'm such a frightened person, I'm horrible, I'm terrible, I need a therapist, But um, which is a decision you might make in another context, but hopefully not when you're sitting down to meditate. So um, it's the therapist part, not that you're a horrible person. And uh, so you just observe fear, and one of the things I've seen is that unlike the world's pronouncement, like, oh, we're afraid of the unknown, I'm actually afraid when I think I do know and it's going to be really bad. And it's the stories I tell myself that kind of get me going. And in the midst of that kind of arc of anxiety, if I remind myself, you know what, you don't know, then I feel relief. I feel space. And I feel an ability to just be with what is and see what comes next instead of, you know, having it, like, well, I freak out. So I feel I've learned a lot just from the power of paying attention. Because, of course, that's not just a pattern I see informal meditation, and that's a remedy I can use sitting on an airplane or, or whatever it is, you know? Yeah, that that old idea that we all are full of illusions, <laughs> and they make they can be full of fear often Yeah, very because much. of that negative bias of our evolved minds. Mm-hmm. And seeing clearly is about, you know, clears the way to connect mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with other people like we're really yearning for. Because you also wrote in this book that you know we're social mammals and there's really no mm-hmm. way to feel complete all by yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think you can feel complete all by yourself, but your inner state is not cut off. You know, like if I think about those stories of like a, you know, Buddhist or Taoist monk going off and becoming a hermit, they would say they're motivated by love for all beings everywhere. Right. You know, and compassion for all beings everywhere. And or I, I taught in Israel just one time, and um, it was uh, the facility was a Catholic nunnery that we were renting, and that was just, it was like the wing that they let other people stay in, and there were nuns in. Uh, in seclusion there, who uh, I was told prayed all the time. And so they had to read the newspaper because they they wanted to know, like, where to target their prayers. And so were they, you know, cut off? I mean, because they weren't eating with us or, you know, they probably knew more about what was happening in the world than I did, but they were they were in seclusion and just praying, so... It's not a Western model particularly, you know, except for really reclusive Christian monks or nuns, but I don't think it's the form that's so important. But for us, you know, living as lay people in society, to have that sense of isolation or armoring is very unfortunate. People say to me, you know, things like, I used to love New York because you could just strike up a conversation with, like, the oddest people and 
and it'd be a great conversation, you know? Someone you wouldn't usually, maybe wouldn't be in your social circle, you wouldn't talk to them to, and everyone's on their phone, you know? So you feel odd, like, saying to some, anything to the person sitting next to you in the bus or something. And, uh, so we're so much more cut off from one another. And, and a lot of the social structure that we used to count on to get together, it's dissolving. So I, I quote in that book, um, Real Love, uh, this book which has a tremendous title, uh, Bowling Alone. Oh, yeah. You know, about the kind of dissolution of bowling leagues. It's just those places where people used to just come together with a common interest. And, you know, depending on if you have an affiliation with organized religion or not, I mean, it's a tremendous social function in you know, church or synagogue and sense yeah, of community. Bowling alone goes through, I think, like 60 years of data of fall-off from bowling leagues and PTA meetings and church affiliations and all sorts of associations, basically yeah. cataloging this epidemic of loneliness uh, and disconnection that we find ourselves in. Uh, so, yeah, I guess you know, we're, we're in this, this epidemic of loneliness, and I, I know there's so many people looking for romantic love or looking for real friendship or looking for a sense of purpose and connection to their communities, uh, all of which seems like a way of looking for real love. And what do you have to say to these people? What words do you have for them right now? My mind's going in two directions. One is, to some extent, uh, offering loving kindness to yourself and sort of getting in that mode of self-compassion is a tremendous foundation. And then I would just uh, don't don't disregard the small things. Like try to help somebody, you know, thank somebody or smile at them. Or the, the great New York example is somebody does try to strike up a conversation with you like in an elevator, you know, talk to them or volunteer, you know, like do something so that you have that sense of generosity of offering, of giving, because that actually returns us to a sense, even for a moment, of inner abundance, of some worth, you know. And so, or phone bank, you know, for a candidate, or, you know, do something, get engaged in, in some way. It won't apparently solve all the world's problems, you know, in one fell swoop or, or anything, but you will actually be in connection with others, and it's, it's a great thing. Beautiful. So we've been talking about your book, Real Love, the Art of Mindful Connection. I recommend it to everyone. If you actually do all the practices in here, it'll change your life, I'm sure. Thank you. And uh, I also know that you're a teacher. So if someone was really resonating with our conversation today and wanted to take one of your courses, where, where could they find you? Uh, the best thing is probably to look at my website, which is SharonSalisbury.com, because I live in Massachusetts and part-time in New York City. And yet I travel, I'm supposed to go to North Carolina this week if it's not flooded out, you know, where I need to go, so. And I've been, as I said, writing a book, so I haven't traveled that much, but I'm starting, you know, to again, so. And you mentioned that you were one of the founders of Insight mm -hmm. Meditation. That's in Massachusetts, Yeah, this correct? is Massachusetts. And they have lots of teachers come through there now, or? Yeah, I mean, lots of teachers come. The, the retreat centers, the Insight Meditation Society, has kind of immersive, intensive, silent retreats. Some are three, two days, three days, seven days, nine days, you know, or longer. And, and so there's a whole schedule, you know. 
There's also up there uh, the Barry Center of Buddhist Studies. The town is Barry, B-A-R-E, Barry Center of Buddhist Studies, where uh, they also have programs of differing lengths, which tend to be maybe a combination of practice, but also study or, you know, Eastern and Western psychology would be one example. And there are not really affiliated with us, but, you know, there are insight meditation groups and centers all around the world, actually. Yeah, so any week, any month, there's help available. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes if I'm going to a town I've never been to before for something else, like the Democratic National Convention, for example, I would just Google, you know, Charlotte, insight to meditation and see what came up. Okay, cool, cool. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, too. Thanks so much for listening to one of our biggest episodes yet. If you haven't already, please check out wecroak.com and our Patreon page. We'd also love to hear from you with a review from iTunes. And more importantly, be sure to go out and have a good long chat with your Lucy. Thank you.